So, so we laugh at that, and yet, how many of us are guilty of doing all of those things that he was talking about? You know what I mean, right? If we, if we just stop viewing social media and 24-hour cable news so much, and just go weed the garden, or sit on the steps with a cup of coffee, or play with the grandkids, we'd probably be a lot less worried uh, in our lives. So today we're going to look at, at Psalm 37, at first glance, it kind of looks like it's telling us about worrying or anxiety when we have a, a title like Fret Not. It's um, kind of what, what it sounds like it might be about, right? But it isn't quite. Uh, worry can go in a couple of directions, depending on a number of things. Your personality, the circumstances, the things that maybe you are worrying about. Some people, when they worry, they become paralyzed or, or anxious or, or fearful, Other times when people worry, or other different people that do worry about things, they don't so much become afraid or sad, they become angry, frustrated, and they want to lash out, and they become resentful. And this is the type that King David is describing here. There's that refrain in Psalm 37, fret not, fret not yourself. Kind of a holdover, I guess, from the King James Version. Uh, of the Bible, and, and I think Martin Luther probably influenced that with his, his German translation, but fret maybe isn't exactly the best word to describe what King David is talking about here. Now, there are some, some Hebrew grammar things going on, but the root of this word is hara, and it's just the usual word, a Hebrew word for being angry. It, it literally means to burn. It means to, to get heated up and burn with anger. So the idea here when it says fret not, it's not so much saying, you know what, don't go around wringing your hands going, oh dear, oh my, oh dear, like that. It's more talking about don't get yourself worked up and angry over the things that are concerning to you, right? The image is not that. It's more getting red in the face and stomping your feet and lashing out and wanting to sometimes get revenge. Now, as we read this psalm, this does become a bit more apparent, especially in verse 8 of Psalm 37. You know, in general, though, I think our English translations of, of Hebrew poetry, even solid, solid translations like the English Standard Version, come off a bit weak in uh, portraying the depth of emotion that's often there. So it says, fret not, uh, which maybe isn't the best. But, you know, I consulted some, some uh, French and Italian and Spanish translations of the Bible, and they basically had, don't get angry. Um, you know, many cultures, I should back out, our culture, we tend to view the Bible and Christianity through the lens of our own culture. Many cultures will interpret things a bit differently, and it's good to remember that. It's good to remember that some cultures out there in the world tend to be much more open and, um, and accepting of strong emotions than, than North American, largely white, Anglo culture is on a, as a general rule. And that, that comes out even in how different cultures translate the Bible. But before we just go talking about the scriptures some more, let's uh, read Psalm 37. I'd invite you to stand, and today we're going to read this uh, responsively as it comes up on the screen. Uh, rather than just hearing me read it. It's quite long, and I thought it might be nice to have some different voices that you can hear. So I will read kind of the plain text, and you can read the the slightly bolded and italicized text there. And just to make sure we're all looking at the same thing, I'm going to read from the screen too. Uh, We we sometimes have where it's slightly different. So, verse 1. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. For they will soon fade like the grass. 
Trust in the Lord and do good. Delight yourself in the Lord. Commit your way to the Lord. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light. Be still before the Lord. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. For the evildoers shall be cut off. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. But the meek shall inherit the land. The wicked plots against the righteous. But the Lord laughs at the wicked. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows. Their sword shall enter their own heart. Better is the little that the righteous has. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken. The Lord knows the days of the blameless. They are not put to shame in evil times. But the wicked will perish. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. The wicked borrows but does not pay back. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land. The steps of a man are established by the Lord. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong. I have been young and now I'm old. Or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously. Turn away from evil and do good. For the Lord loves justice. They are preserved forever. The righteous shall inherit the land. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom. The law of his God is in his heart. The wicked watches for the righteous. The Lord will not abandon him to his power. Wait for the Lord and keep his way. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. I have seen a wicked, ruthless man. But he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Mark the blameless, and behold the upright. But transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. 
The Lord helps them and delivers them. Because they take refuge in him. That's God's word. You can have a seat. So that, that's a bit of a long psalm. We're not going to have time to go through it verse by verse in one sermon. And it, is, it gets a little bit repetitive, right? The wicked, bad. The righteous, God cares for them. And he finds about 25 different ways to say that. But So instead of just going through it verse by verse, I want to look at this psalm kind of in terms of themes or movements. So the first is what we're to avoid. And then the second is what we're to do instead. And the third is why. So don't get fired up out of envy. Don't let yourself get angry. The fact of the matter is this. There is injustice and unfairness in the world. There just is, right? Bad people get ahead, and good people sometimes suffer. Sometimes they are oppressed. They get mistreated. The virtuous people go unnoticed or unrewarded, and the undeserving people prosper. You know what? It probably helps us, for a moment at least, if we can step back from thinking about the big systemic injustices of the world, important though they are, and think about this ourselves. Right? You, I'm sure we've all had these sorts of things happen in our lives. You get passed over for a promotion even though you're a qualified hard worker and some guy who is just basically a shameless self-promoter gets a better job than you have even though he doesn't really know what he's doing. He just got it from, from self-promoting. Or maybe your business is struggling because you refuse to cut corners and do honest work Meanwhile, somebody over here who is ripping people off is getting ahead, getting all the contracts. Or for those of us in church ministry, even though you preach the word faithfully and you care faithfully for your people, your church isn't growing, whereas there's others that are growing huge, even though maybe they're not so honest. They preach fluffy self-help sermons, just try to entertain people. We could go on. I'm sure we can all think of things in our own lives. These aren't the big, huge issues of macroeconomics and social injustice out in the world. But if we're honest, these are things that get us fired up inside, that make us go, why is it this way? Fired up isn't a bad literal translation of the Hebrew word we talked about earlier. And likely these things get us fired up far out of proportion to actually how significant they are in the grand scheme of our lives, let alone eternity. Get angry. I believe there is a time and a place for righteous anger. The great irony is that we're usually way too quick to get angry about unrighteous things, even as we're way too willing to assume the things we get angry about are really righteous and important. You see what I'm saying? Sometimes it's actually an inverse correlation. The more trivial the thing is, the more it gets us and the more we get angry and the more likely we're trying to convince ourselves that it actually really is a big thing and matters. Now, that's not to say that there aren't occasions when there is such a thing as as righteous anger. I mean, put that slide up there, Mark. I always think this is funny. I always get a kick out of this one, right? If anyone ever asks you what would Jesus do, remind yourself that you can read it for yourself, right? Making a whip isn't out of the question. 
So we have examples in scripture where there was such a thing as righteous anger. Jesus got righteously angry and made a whip and and drove people out of the temple. And so if you can stand up for somebody who's being oppressed, then stand up. If you can do something to work towards righting a wrong, then right the wrong. Take the steps. But this passage and, and the rest of scripture, again, recently we were in the Sermon on the Mount. Think of that. How many times Jesus is very clear there. Don't take revenge on your enemies. Love your enemies instead. It makes it clear that going out for revenge is not a thing to do. And so does this psalm. Verse 8. Refrain from anger. Forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only toward evil. Verse 23 says, Turn away from evil and do good. Don't go out for revenge. And don't sit around brooding about how you've been wronged. And don't stoop to doing evil in return to get ahead. Don't do any of those things. Even if you're in the right even if you are right and the other situation is clearly wrong or the other person is clearly wrong, it's not going to do you any good to try to stoop to that level or get angry or go out for revenge. Those things just poison your soul eventually. Three times in this psalm, we're urged to fret not. Don't get all fired up. Three times in this psalm, though, we're urged to a better course of action. Wait for the Lord or wait on the Lord, depending on what translation you have. The Hebrew uses different words for wait, so I won't make too much of a deal out of three fret knots and three wait for the Lord, but it does seem to be the opposite course of action. Waiting goes against fretting or fussing or getting all worked up and vexed and angry, but waiting doesn't mean just do nothing, just sit there and don't do anything. We view waiting as kind of wasted time, don't we? How many of us If we're in a lineup, if we're waiting at the doctor, the dentist, what do we do anymore? Pull out your phone, right? Play some games, check your texts. If there aren't any, maybe send a text or two. Check your Facebook, your Instagram, your Snapchat, whatever whatever it is you like to use. Even if you have to wait a few minutes, seconds even, right? A commercial break or a red light, which we're not supposed to do, but how many of us do it? We just don't like waiting And so rather than wait, we try to distract ourselves with something else. But in the biblical understanding of things, waiting isn't some passive thing that you just sit there and do nothing until something happens. Time waiting is not time wasted. In the Bible's understanding, it has to do with holding on to hope and continuing to trust. If anything, it seems the opposite of distracting yourself, it seems that waiting on the Lord means spending more focused attention on the Lord. But what does that actually look like? The psalm gives us some helpful pictures of what that looks like. So first of all, be still before the Lord. Be still before the Lord. Easier said than done, of course. I'm sure we can all think of a situation where we tried very hard because we had to, to be calm. Because social propriety or our continued employment required us to not say the thing that was in our brain that we would have really liked to say to that person because we would have gotten in serious trouble. So we said something nice, even though we were probably saying it through gritted teeth. Or maybe you've tried the techniques, you know, counting to ten or thinking happy thoughts 
going for a walk. And maybe those things did prevent us from saying something that we were seriously going to regret later or sending that email that would have been a really bad idea because that would have put it in writing. That's good. But those, those techniques don't always prevent us from continuing to sit there and brood about the situation and be all worked up inside for the next number of hours or even days. So what do we do then? We remember, Scripture doesn't just say, be still, as though it's just, I'll sit here and I'll count to ten and I'll breathe a little bit. That's fine. But it says, be still before the Lord. That means a couple of things, I think. First, it means take time personally to be still before the Lord. Before we get into the stresses and strains of the day and the pushes and pulls of email and meetings and social media and the 24-hour news that we've got to check, we should be disciplined to spend time in his presence by word and prayer. What we put into our minds and into our souls first in the day, it matters and it can set the tone for the rest of the entire day and how it goes and how we think and the kind of tracks our mind starts going towards. Second, Coming before the Lord in the Old Testament context usually meant coming before the Lord at his temple to worship him there with God's people. Now, the temple and our local congregation in the 21st century are not exactly analogous, but they're not exactly totally separate either. They are still the place where the corporate worship of the Lord happened. So coming before the Lord in the context of the gathered worship of his people still matters greatly in being still before the Lord. The next picture we have is delight yourself in the Lord. Many of us will have memorized this verse. Some of us may have it on our fridge or on a plaque or in our office, somewhere in our, our, our home or at our workplace. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Earlier in our service, we had a little portion of the Sermon on the Mount read and Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Sounds kind of like Jesus saying, Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. There's an awful lot of connections between the Sermon on the Mount and the Psalms in particular. But what does that mean? Delight yourself in the Lord. And what does it mean that he will give us the desires of our heart if we do? Again, let's remember the depth of emotion that's present here. The Bible doesn't present us with this purely intellectual faith that urges us just to engage the mind. It encourages us to be engaged with the whole person. That's why when we have congregational singing, the people that are leading in worship lead in worship. We all are singing together with our actual voices. When we baptize somebody, we we take an actual person and plunge them under actual water. When we eat together, we eat actual food. We don't just think about these things, we actually do them. You see the point. We're not told just to give intellectual assent to the idea of the Lord. We're told to take delight in him. The word here conveys the idea of taking pleasure in God the way you would take pleasure in the most delightful and exquisite of luxuries. So do we really delight in the Lord that way? Do we rejoice in his good gifts to us? Are we thrilled with his gift of salvation in Jesus? Or are we more preoccupied and distracted by the latest gadget or sports score or action movie? How thrilled are you that you are a child of God? How thrilled are you that God's mercies are new for you every morning and that he does not treat you 
as your sins deserve. Probably not thrilled enough, at least if you're like me. What does it mean that he will give us the desires of our hearts? Well, despite what some people might want you to believe because they're selling you something, it doesn't mean that trusting God is a means to an end, that delighting in the Lord and trusting him is is a way to just get the things that you want. It isn't a promise that if you just love God enough, he will give you what you really want, a better job, someone to spend your life with, better health, more money, etc. That is just to love the outcome that you really want more than God and, and to delight in it rather than in him. And God will not be a means to an end in that way. He just won't. What it does mean is that as we take delight in God, even a little bit, here or there and imperfectly at first, he will shape our hearts to love and delight in the things that he loves, to want the things for ourselves that he wants for us. As we take delight in him, it will reestablish and and reorder the desires of our hearts so that they're proper and right. Some things we desire are just bad for us. And by his grace, as we delight in him, those will fall away. Some of the things we desire, even that we desire very much, are not wrong things in and of themselves. But as we delight in the Lord, those things will be put into their proper place where having them will actually be seen as a gift from God. And not a replacement for him. Verse 5 says, commit your way to the Lord. Again, let's remember that this is in the context still of waiting on the Lord. We're looking at ways that waiting isn't just passive doing nothing. But it also isn't taking matters into our own hands. Trust in him and he will act, it says in verse 5. Even if in your time of waiting, you don't know exactly what you're supposed to do, what your next step is, where you're going to work, where the money is going to come for this or that, or what decision you should make at this or that thing in your life, there are still certain habits and attitudes and disciplines that it is always right to continue cultivating, even if you don't know the specifics of what God would have you do. Or maybe you only have a vague idea of where you need to go at first and what your next step is. And maybe you can see the next step, but what you would really want is to see three, four, five steps from now. But you can still take that next step if the Lord is pointing you in that direction. Because waiting on the Lord doesn't mean sitting around and doing nothing until he makes everything personally and perfectly clear for you. As Andrew mentioned earlier, we had a staff retreat on Friday for our church staff. Some of this is is just a necessary thing to do. We've got some new people and newer people, and we're all trying to figure out how we're going to work together. And I presented verse 5 as sort of our, our CCC staff verse for the year. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. And we've been through a lot of change over these last months. And this is no small thing for us or for you. Uh, the, the transitioning out of a long-term lead pastor when the church is doing well, th- that sinks some churches. And I'm very grateful that it doesn't seem like it's going to sink Cairnport Community Church. The Lord, the Lord is providing. Uh, and even so, even so, we still need your prayers more than ever now. To trust God to act. Maybe this, maybe this is, you know, 
those of you that have some training or experience in drama or theater, we talk about breaking the fourth wall. You know what that is? Where you actually kind of speak outside of the script and speak to the audience directly. It's been on my mind a lot lately, though. So this is kind of just an aside and and a personal comment. Leading and running a church, regardless of whether it has 50 people attending or 500 or 5,000, it's no simple endeavor that you just draw up a formula and a step-by-step plan and carry on. This isn't, this isn't assembling a piece of Ikea furniture or, or building a Lego set where it's, here's a step, here's a step, here's a step, and, and, and suddenly you've got R2-D2 there. Look at that. That's, that's not how a church operates. You can't just break it down into little step-by-step instructions like that. It's, it's a lot more like journeying to a place that, that you don't know down a road. And I think the, the way or the road ahead is, is pretty well defined by Scripture and by 20 centuries of church practice, some of which found success and, and some of which did not. And as I understand it, I outlined some of that in my report to the congregation last week. If you didn't get a chance to read that report, I have a few uh, hard copies on the back and it's available on the website under the bulletin tab or on our Facebook. There's a link to it there. The thing I've come to really realize about pastoral leadership, and I think I speak for our whole staff, is about looking ahead and recognizing that there are some things that that absolutely need to change. But at the same time, recognizing that you can't force them and compel them to change, even if you need to. Even as, so it's this back and forth, you see the need for the change to happen. You can't force it or just compel it to happen and walk all over people in doing so. But you can't do nothing either. You have to work and guide toward what needs to happen. That's why the Bible uses the term, the term shepherding. That's why I think this verse is so crucial for what we do as a church staff. We see the road ahead, we commit to doing that wholeheartedly for God's glory, and we trust that where there are obstacles, the Lord will remove them. Where there is lack, he will fill it, and where there is confusion, he will provide clarity. Trust in the Lord brings us to the final thing. It's kind of just another aspect of what waiting on the Lord looks like. Trusting in the Lord. And again, it's more than just accepting that certain facts about God are true. That's important, but trusting him goes further than that. It means, well, it means, it means trusting him and getting on with the things that we need to do. This makes perfect sense in, in everyday life. If, if I'm at home and it's lunchtime and I'm about to go out the door to work and Dushel says, I think I'll make a pizza for supper. What do I do? I, I go to work and I carry on with my day. What I don't do is I don't wait an hour after I get to work and type an email and say, hey, uh, how's that pizza going? Are are you mixing the dough together now? Is it going to have enough time to rise? Did did you remember to put all the ingredients in it? Uh, Is everything okay? And I I don't phone Pizza Hut and order a spare pizza as a backup just in case. And, and I don't phone as I'm about to leave the office and go back home and say, hey, is, is that pizza going in the oven? Are you cutting up the toppings now? Are you putting the toppings on? I just trust that there will be a pizza and I go on about my day. And it, it's almost laughable when we think about it in terms of relationships with other people. And yet how often do we kind of treat God that way? He says, 
I will be there for you. I will be your God. I will take care of you. And yet we're constantly going, oh, but God, I'm, I'm feeling a little bit discomfort right now. Did you forget that you're going to take care of me? Maybe you need to show me a sign or two so I know that, that you really are still with me after all because I'm, I'm just not sure. Or maybe, maybe I need to help God out a little bit. Maybe he's not quite coming through for me and I need to help him a little bit. I need to phone in that order for a pizza because I don't think he's actually going to show up and get that pizza made, so to speak. And what happens when we get into that state of not trusting? When we stop trusting God to take care of our future, what usually happens is we stop doing the things in the present that he's given us to do. When we stop trusting him for the future, we stop doing what we need to be doing in the present as well. We're not very far into this psalm, are we? We, we we're in what, verse, verse 8 or something? Barely made it past verse 5? It's a long psalm. But basically the rest of the whole psalm answers a question. One question. Why should we do this? Why should we wait on the Lord? Why should we trust in him? Why should we be still before him rather than take things into our own hands? Why should we be still before him rather than fussing and fuming about our problems? The answer in multiple examples from the rest of this psalm is that God will judge the wicked and vindicate the righteous. And like I said at the start, he finds about 25 different ways to say that. The Lord knows the righteous, the wicked will perish. That the way of the wicked will be cut off. The, the Lord's righteousness will uphold the, the good people. The righteous won't be downtrodden forever. But here's the thing. This psalm kind of makes it sound like we can expect that judgment of the wicked people and the restoration of the righteous right away. It even says, in a little while, the wicked's going to be no more and the righteous are going to be vindicated. What about that statement where he says, I was young once and now I'm old and I've never seen the righteous forsaken or the righteous person's children begging for bread? You're like, What? What about all the, the hungry and suffering Christians all over the world right now? Never mind like all the, all the Christians that Stalin sent to the gulags or, or the righteous people that have been persecuted by terrorist groups and all throughout history, right? Plenty of righteous people have gone hungry. Plenty of righteous people have been put to death. Plenty of people that's happening to right now around this world. What do we do with that? Well, first of all, we acknowledge that, yes, righteous people do suffer. And then I think we say that this psalm is, is not promising us a trouble-free life. It's saying that in any reasonably healthy society, it is better to live righteously than to live wickedly. It is better to be honest and truthful and faithful to people around you than to be manipulative and two-faced and double-crossing and nasty, right? Honesty and faithfulness is better over deception and treachery over the course of your life. It is better to live that way. Usually things will turn out better for you if you do. But second of all, we acknowledge that this psalm, the language of it, yes, seems to be primarily concerned with what happens in this life. But there are certainly some strong hints that it points beyond what is happening in the here and now. Look at verses 27 and 29. Read those again. 
Turn away from evil and do good. So shall you dwell forever. For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever. But the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. And I think that word forever is a a clue to how we should really understand this psalm. It makes some important changes for us. First, it pushes us to reconsider how we're going to interpret God's word. While the perspective of this psalm might be initially a this-life point of view, it's not limited to only a this-life point of view. It's not limited to only a what-happens-in-my-lifetime point of view. The ultimate fulfillment is in generations to come and on and on into eternity even. Second, it pushes us to re-examine our understanding of reality. We live in an embodied existence, and naturally we will be concerned about what happens to us, to our existence in this life here and now. But this word forever, as it's repeated there, it reminds us that that's not all there is to reality. It's not limited by the physical world we live in or the time span that we live in it for. If you've been here recently and if you've paid even a little bit of attention, you you should probably know where I'm going next. Jesus? If anybody ever had a good reason to be angry about the injustices coming his way, if ever there was a righteous man that had a right to be angry about the wicked prospering, was it not Jesus, right? The man who spent his whole life doing the will of his father perfectly, living sinlessly, speaking only the truth, and only doing right and good and loving people, got betrayed by one of his closest friends, put through a sham trial, and executed by one of the cruelest ways ever devised by man? What does Scripture tell us? It tells us that even though he could have called 12 legions of angels to lay the hurt down on his oppressors, we we have time. Okay, you remember that story in Genesis when uh, God decides he is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? And uh, two angels show up to save Lot and, and, and his family. And two angels pretty much take out, like, all the men of Sodom. Two angels. Twelve legions is 60,000 angels. I think Jesus could have called enough angels to pretty much wipe out all sinful humanity at that point, is what we should get from that. Not just the, the Roman soldiers putting him to death, but all of us. And he did not do so. It tells us in Scripture that even when false accusations were made against Jesus, he didn't defend himself even though he was in the right and even though he could have had every right to do so, he did not. What does it tell us? It tells us that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And yet on the other side of that, he will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday, this psalm tells us. And that was certainly never true more for anyone than it was for Jesus. How does the New Testament, in Romans 1, it says, He was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. 
The resurrection of Jesus is the ultimate guarantee that we can trust God to act, even if it frees us up from demanding that he must do so in, the, in this life, in the here and now, by changing our immediate circumstances. We can trust God to act for us because in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, he has already acted for us, ultimately. We can trust that God has, has our present taken care of because he has taken care of everything from our past that could separate us from God and he's taken care of the future when we will be with God forever. Now that might not give you a step-by-step plan to deal with whatever you're going through today like that, that book of, of Lego instructions and sometimes that's what we want, right? We're going through a situation And we just want somebody to hand us a book of Lego instructions or an assembly guide to that piece of Ikea furniture with very simple little diagrams. You know, stick this in here, turn it this number of turns clockwise, and it is assembled. And that's what we would like, but that's not always what we get. But I think in the gospel, in the resurrection of Jesus, we have something better. doesn't necessarily tell us exactly how we're to solve every issue that we might be up against and we are looking for guidance for. But maybe it does give us a way to put those things into their proper perspective. Not just how to fix them all, but how to actually understand what they are about. Because maybe it allows us to see them in the light of the resurrection of Jesus and the forever that's on the other side of that. For him and by extension for us with him forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this reminder that there are things in this world that make us upset. Some of them are big things, Lord. They are injustices and evils in this world. We've talked about and looked at those a little bit today. Uh, Some of the things that make us upset are are pretty trivial things in the grand scheme of even our lives, let alone eternity. And yet we know that those things make us upset too, sometimes far, far more than they should. And there are things in our own personal lives that aren't trivial, that are very difficult, very challenging, very real health concerns that don't seem to have any answers, or very real relationship concerns where things are very difficult and rocky, challenging. Very real concerns about what we're to do uh, in our futures, where we just seem to be struggling, where things are not going well. Whatever the case may be, Lord, they're there and they're real. We pray that by your Holy Spirit at work in us, you will enable us to respond to these things appropriately, and that we will be equipped to wait for you. Not to sit around and do nothing, Lord, but to keep trusting you, to keep doing the things that we know we need to do, to keep taking one step at a time as you make that clear to us, even if we don't know what's going to be going on six steps from now, to commit that way to you, to trust in you, to do what we can, Lord, even as we trust you to act in the things that we can't deal with, obstacles that are too big for us, things that need to 
change in one way or another that we are unable to, to do or forced to happen at any rate. We pray that you would um, give us that kind of trusting heart that trusts you for those things, that holds on tight even in these difficult circumstances that we may face. And we pray all of that, of course, not just um, that we would have that kind of willpower somehow, but that we would have that as we look to your gospel and as we look to our Savior Jesus and see that there was no one who ever had more, more reason to be upset about unrighteousness seeming to triumph and good and love and righteousness being downtrodden. He personified that, Lord. And yet, you did vindicate him when all hope seemed to be lost. And as we look to Jesus and his resurrection, may it give us hope and courage to face whatever we need to face today. May we see that that resurrection is also there for us and true of us now and ultimately into eternity. We pray that that would give us strength and courage to trust in you. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and respond together.